What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Justine Humanansky with Rabbit Hole. Justine has worked as an investor at Dorm Room Fund, First Round Capital, and Playground Global, and she recently switched over to Rabbit Hole to help the next era of people gain skills for participating in the new digital economy. In this talk, we discuss networks based on ownership instead of association, the crypto adoption cycle and bringing on late adopters, and Web3 projects staying compliant with legal ambiguity. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yo, everyone, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. Today, we have uh, a really cool guest whose title, even though she just she just said it's it's to be announced, I'm going to just go by her LinkedIn tagline, which is a metaverse slime merchant. <laughs> no. Yeah, please welcome uh, Justin Human. Oh, my gosh. Humanansky, uh, who was at Playground Global, is doing some really, really dope stuff in the crypto blockchain world. And um, yeah, just of the people who are like really about that life and have some of our favorite backgrounds, she's one of them. And I guess you can start by saying hello and maybe telling us how you transitioned from being a professional ballet dancer to our favorite pre-VC profession equity research to some sick firms and what you're up to next. Yeah, sure. Um, happy to be here. I, I can definitely tell you I went um, from ballerina to metaverse <laughs> slime merchant. So, <laughs> yeah, like you mentioned, I started out as a professional ballerina and I did that for six years after high school. And then I did undergrad after that. And I did uh, my undergrad in New York. Someone suggested I should do uh, a finance internship. <clears throat> I'm not sure what that recommendation was based on, but I was like, okay, I'll try it. And then some of the elements of that environment were actually similar to ballet in that it was very performance-based and somewhat competitive, like how fast-paced everything was and trying to understand markets and how everything was connected. And you had to have a pretty broad and global understanding. So I ended up going into equity research. I was really fortunate to get placed on the large cap internet team. So I covered all the web two platforms like Facebook, Google, Netflix, Twitter, Yahoo, all of them. And then ended and towards the end did some telco infrastructure stuff. So I actually worked in a massive data center for a summer. I did the CFA program while I was doing that, thinking I'd go work for a hedge fund. And then I just realized I didn't really think like a hedge fund, meaning I just wasn't that interested in if AT&T was going to like meet, meet their numbers for the quarter or not. But my boss was like, please stop talking about that startup that has no revenues and does not matter <laughs> right now. So I, that's when I realized like venture would probably be a better fit for me and started looking into different MBA programs as one way to move into venture. It's definitely not the only way. And around that time, 
I also went to a wedding in New York and ended up talking to an early employee of Coinbase. And he was like, you need to listen to this uh, podcast about Ethereum. And I did. And I think having spent a couple of years modeling now and understanding like decently well how the Web2 ecosystem worked, like the idea uh, of Web3 kind of made immediate sense to me. And so I was like, okay, when I get my MBA, I really want to like take those two years and focus on crypto and try to understand what is going on. This was like early 2017. So I ended up going to Berkeley specifically to focus on crypto, a bunch of venture stuff while I was there. So I spent my time on like those two things and then graduated May 2020 and joined a fund called Playground Global, which is a deep tech fund based in, in Palo Alto. That was like basic, primarily leading series A deals in the space. And I was there until July, which point I decided to make a transition for Two main reasons. One, I was spending 100% of my time on, on crypto stuff uh, and Playground does not participate in that ecosystem and is not interested in doing so. And then the second reason was that I wanted to move into more of an operating role. And as you mentioned, I, I've been in the process of doing that and I'm going to join a startup shortly, but it's not announced yet. So I can't share any details on that. All investors, you should be waiting for her update. <laughs> Because whatever company this is that we can't speak on, <laughs> be one of the hottest in the game. <laughs> Yo, can you tell us real quick how the A16Z crypto startup yeah. school was? Like, what the heck? I didn't even know they had that. Yeah, so they only did it once. I'm not sure if they're planning to do it again. But it was basically they picked 40 participants to do this, like, eight-week program. What was interesting about the makeup of the participants was that, like, I would say maybe maybe if third of participants had came in with a formed idea, had built protocols before, been in crypto for a long time. And then third of the participants had probably been in crypto for a while, but maybe didn't have an idea that they wanted to work on yet. That's the category I was in. And then a third of participants were new to crypto, maybe worked at like traditional big tech companies or whatever, but like wanted to explore. And so I think the, the school was kind of aimed at like, getting people that were maybe interested in starting something in crypto, like the community and resources and like nudge to take that leap or move farther along that journey. And then I mean, I think also it's like put 40 smart people interested in crypto together. And maybe it's not like at the culmination of the program, you have a bunch of companies spinning out, but I imagine that many of us will work together in many different capacities kind of over the next five to 10 years. And that's what that program was. I met a lot of great people through it. It was unfortunate that two weeks in, we had to go remote. The team did <laughs> the best that, that could be expected given the circumstances. Got it. That's and all, that, all the materials are open source, available online. So you can watch the same sessions that the participants did. And you can see me in, in the videos on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we got to share that in the newsletter. Speaking of things to share in the newsletter, you wrote a piece on Web3. And I would love to, or we both would, Clay's dug really deep into your piece, just to talk about the evolution from Web 2 to Web 3, the differences and kind of how you see it playing out. Yeah, sure. I'll do my best to keep this. I mean, you probably write a whole book on this, but I'll do my best to kind of like... Hey, don't worry, we're going to post your article, which is very well written too. Yeah, like I mentioned, I covered Facebook and Twitter and you know the social networks on... Uh, web 2 as an analyst so i think maybe earlier than it was like necessarily in the public domain i was pretty concerned about some of the dynamics 
on those platforms and kind of like what the underlying business ops and, and business model was. And, and basically that derives from in part the fact that the way the current internet is set up doesn't have a native identity layer in it. And so the way that ecosystem developed was that every time I go use service on web two, I have to log in and they keep um, information about me and what I do on their platform and it, it's siloed. And so I have like one set of identity attached to certain data on Facebook and, and another on Google and another in you know, a different social network. And so that just creates these kind of siloed ecosystems. And then we put on top of that, a business model that was very extractive to users and it was advertising, meaning it was advertisement based. And the way to monetize that was so that the value accrued not to the users basically. And so the users were providing a lot of value and content and engagement and interactions on these platforms but they weren't participating in any of the upside of the growth of those platforms. And so when you have, the other thing it does is that really the way that the, then having these silos and then network effects growing in these silos, it, it has a tendency to create monopolies. And then if you're a, a, a developer or any other participant in the ecosystem, you have major platform risk in that if Facebook decides to change the rules about you know, who they want to integrate with or, or how Google does their algorithm or whatever. There are a lot of other players in the space that are massively impacted by that. So you have this outsized power of certain players, like it's kind of like, like you always do with Monopoly 3, which basically just means kind of like interacting online in a similar way, but on Ethereum or another blockchain, it doesn't have to be Ethereum. Most of the activities and uh, Web3 is happening on Ethereum, but it allows for value and identity to be built in more at the base layer so that everything is portable and open. So you have you can have a social graph in the way that you do on Facebook, but it's all open and accessible and anybody can build services on that. And there's no one party that can cut off access to that. And so you don't get these walled gardens. It also has a lot of benefits for the user and that they're more active participants and owners even in these social networks. And so I'd like to say it gives participants a vote, a voice and a vote. So when you have like a governance token, like you do on Web3 for these, for these networks, as a user of the network, you're actually entitled to vote on changes to that network. And therefore that gives you a voice. And so you obviously can't do that on social networks like on web two, I don't want to name names. And so I think there's also, there's other things about it where a lot of this is social networks are based on human interaction. And so you're never going to get rid of human nature. So like web three is not going to solve all the problems of web two. We're still subject to human instincts and the factors that drive those interactions. And so you're still going to have massive people trying to signal status and other things on web Three, it's just that it's actually much higher. It's a much more credible signal because on Web3, your kind of identity and profile is based on your ownership of different digital assets and your membership to different groups, as opposed to just indications of things, which is how it works on Web2. So if you're loosely connected to somebody on LinkedIn, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have certain skills. Or if you're you like somebody's post, it doesn't or doesn't necessarily mean that you would actually purchase that item. Whereas on Web3, if you belong 
to uh, a certain group, then you have an asset that proves that you can prove that you have certain skills. And then if you own an asset like an NFT or something, that's all transparent on blockchain and anybody can verify that. So it's still, a lot of it still has to do <laughs> with status and a lot of it is signaling. It's just much higher signal, much, much higher credibility. And it's open and transparent in a way that kind of anybody can see, which also creates more accountability and there's zero accountability in Web2. That was more rambling than I wanted to do. <laughs> it's like a massive topic and it's hard to distill <laughs> down. No, it's good. It's good. Everyone, I actually do recommend you read read her post. I guess for people who are here and kind of want to get a quick feel for you know the applications that they themselves can use to get them involved mm-hmm. in Web3, what are yeah. some of I know you use mirror.xyz and Clay and I have been thinking about it. So is that one that you recommend? Are there any others? And also would love to get your thoughts very briefly on Mirror. Yeah, Mirror is great. It started out as, an, as a Web3 publishing platform. So you could think of it initially like an alternative to Medium. But what's cool is because it's built on crypto infrastructure, you can incorporate things like crowdfunding and like distribution of NFTs and token races and other functionality into it. So I think it's much larger than a publishing platform. I think it probably becomes some of the very critical infrastructure of Web3. But for now, you can publish articles on it and each of those articles is actually, or can be an NFT itself. And so you don't have to worry about, for instance, I have a lot of things published on Medium, but if Medium, you know, decided tomorrow that everybody has to, to pay a certain amount in order to publish on Medium, I would just have to, I would have no choice in that matter. Or if for some reason that all their servers went down or, or whatever, like they ceased to exist, then all of my writing would also cease to exist, which obviously is not an outcome that anybody wants. So that's Mirror. I think if people are interested in NFTs, then I think is like the largest platform where you can buy and sell and browse different NFTs of, of all different kinds. There, there are many other marketplaces. I just think that's the one with, you know, like the largest one and maybe um, the one that people tend to onboard onto first. You'll need to have a wallet to interact with these things. I use MetaMask just because <laughs> that's the wallet I started with and I kept it, but I think Rainbow is really a nice one too. The other thing a lot of people want to get involved with is DAOs. And so the way that you would join DAO is, you've, is there, there are many different kinds of DAOs, but you can go, usually will go to their Twitter or their website and there'll be an invite to, to the Discord. And then you can join the Discord that way and get involved in whatever capacity uh, you want to be involved with. DAOs. And then I would say the third component of Web3 are social tokens. And you can either support an individual creator that launches their own token, or you can join a community. There's one called Friends with Benefits. That's pretty large. And that's kind of, you have social tokens that kind of support that community. So those are like the three main categories of, I would say, activity happening on Web3 right now. Okay. I remember reading that you did a project around nfts which is what i think like everyone that you like after you broke these things down it's like okay people are going to go get their wallet they're going to invest in some stuff mm-hmm. and then everyone's obviously going to get in the, on this nft craze right yeah you actually got to do nfts in a non like hype on twitter or instagram kind of yeah. thing on top of an institution talk about your experience at berkeley please yeah. So first I say, I think like the NFT stuff is so interesting because I think it's onboarding 
a lot of more mainstream users in a way, um, like the way I describe it is, I think in the beginning we had Bitcoin and it, the concept of crypto is okay, crypto is money. And then like 2018-ish to 2020, the big thing was like DeFi. And so then we brought on people that understood crypto as finance, but the, it was like pretty advanced financial things going on in those DeFi protocols that a lot of, I think, mainstream users like probably understand or care about, to be honest. And then with NFTs, we kind of now the conception is a little bit more of like, oh, crypto is culture. Because we could talk about like <laughs> how we're defining culture, but I, I do think it's, and it, NFTs are an interesting vehicle to bring uh, in more of the mainstream to interact with the whole ecosystem. But yeah, um, there's like a huge range of NFTs and, and some of them are, a lot of it is art and a lot of it is these profile pictures that people like flex <laughs> to show they have a crypto pun. <laughs> but there, but there's tons of stuff that can be done uh, with NFTs, and so what was really cool. So I, I went to uh, Berkeley for my MBA, and they, the head of the IP office was reading all this stuff about NFTs. Again, had not like been really involved in crypto before, and him and the the former dean, who's now the of the business school, who's now I think the chief innovation officer at Berkeley, came to me and they said, "Well, we have this idea." for an nft and we want to know if you think it's like valid and then how we would go about doing it and their idea was incredible it was that they have certain invention disclosures for nobel prize winning research that was worked on at berkeley and so it's the step before filing a patent you have to file this invention disclosure that says you know this research was worked on at berkeley and so berkeley owns those invention disclosures and they're not publicly viewable or at least not all of them are and they wanted to take some of these invention disclosures and create an NFT out of them to, I think, showcase Berkeley's kind of like how much of an early adopter, like forward thinking they are in terms of crypto and being the first university to kind of mint an NFT in this way. And then also showcase a lot of the amazing research that's being done at the school, which like I went there every day and didn't realize that. Jim Allison had, you know, done all this work on cancer immunotherapy, which is the invention disclosure that we created the NFT from. So it's it a really cool project to be involved. I, me and, and some of my kind of classmates and former members of blockchain at Berkeley kind of helped them do everything from decide what platform to launch it on, to get a, an amazing designer to actually do the artwork. So we didn't have something that looked like a school science poster come out to, you know, talking to different investors that might be interested. So we ended up doing an option for that NFT, which I, I can see the link, but New York Times wrote an article about it. And in the press, they call it the Nobel NFT, because I think it was also the first NFT that represented Nobel Prize winning research uh, as well. And then we, in the process of this, we created a DAO, which is for people that don't know it, um, it, it stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It's basically a digitally native collective or co-op. So we created a DAO of alumni, which I think was also the first alumni DAO, you know, 34 or so, plus or minus, Berkeley alum that came together. We all pulled um, together ETH to then bid on this NFT. And we, we won the NFT, so we own it. So we're super excited about that. Got it. That is so dope. <laughs> Can you tell us the difference between a DAO yeah. and a traditional organization? 
Yes. I'm like, but like, why, why is everyone so excited? Like, why are you excited? Yeah. I'm very excited about DAOs. It's a little challenging to have a conversation about just DAOs in general, because there, there are many different types of DAOs and they can do different things, but I'll try to talk about it as high a level as I can. <clears throat> Basically, a DAO is, sim- is a, a, I think the best analogy would be like a digital co-op where you have members that come together and they have Oh, like ownership in that DAO based on what they contribute or how many tokens they hold. And that also allows them to vote on the actions of the DAO, you know, kind of, it, it can be structured in different ways. Sometimes it's one member, one vote. Sometimes it's based on their ownership, but kind of everything that the DAO does, at least in theory, it's not always like this in practice is public and transparent to all the members of the DAO. And then funds are held in what's called a multi-signature wallet. So in order for any funds to be transferred or kind of actions to be taken, you need to have a certain threshold of DAO members agree to that and there would be a proposal process and a vote. So for example, if I want to compare it to a venture fund and investing DAO, so you can make syndicates where people pool together capital. So I contributed a certain amount. I think I contributed USDC. It could be ETH as well. And I'm one of 38 members in this investing syndicate and my ownership is proportional to the amount that I contributed. There's a, a core team of five five members that kind of do diligence on deals. So any member can source a deal, but those five will do the diligence. And then the, based on the diligence they do, they'll put forth a proposal that we should either invest or not invest. And in the case that they're proposing that we invest, every member in the DAO has a vote on whether or not we should make that investment. So as opposed to being an LP in a traditional venture fund, I actually have full visibility and transparency into the entire deal pipeline. And I also have a vote like per deal as to whether or not I think uh, we should fund something or not. And then all the members of the DAO need to sign off to meet a certain threshold in order for the, my, the money to be wired, et cetera. So I think that's super interesting. I think that's one version. Another way that people are using DAOs, which I think is, is like absolutely fascinating, is groups of friends coming together. So when we put together the alumni DAO, we put together in 48 hours. So what, what I'm seeing is like these mini social networks, basically, of people um, get together in a Telegram chat and say, hey, I want to accomplish XYZ goal. Uh, and they like, pull all their friends together, they contribute capital, and then they accomplish whatever the original goal was, whether that was to buy an NFT or, I don't know, start a social club or, you know, do whatever it is that they want to do. And then as easily as you spin up a DAO, that DAO can go on forever, or you can spin it down. And I think that DAOs are extremely fascinating as uh, new social networks that combine definitely elements of social network, but also social finance. And it's just like completely fascinating what's happening in this space. You have, you have other things like there's all these protocol DAOs of so the biggest crypto protocols like Uniswap or Aave, they, they have DAOs. And so as a user of their platform, as long as you own the token, then you can actually vote on um, different proposals that are put forward. This is what I mean when I say as a user, you have kind of a vote and a voice. So if they want to change something about the protocol, you, you would actually get to vote for or against that, which is obviously different relative to, to more traditional companies. The, the downsides of DAOs are that they 
are not, there's a lot of regulatory and, and legal ambiguity. And right now, until a, fra a framework is developed specifically for DAOs, which Wyoming is actually kind of the most forward thinking on that front, you're seeing DAOs like have to do things like wrap themselves in, a, in an LLC to deal with different liability issues, or even sometimes a C-Corp in order to be able to pay taxes or even enter into certain contracts with like tr more traditional organizations. And so there's still a long way to go that the kind of what you could call like the DAO stack in terms of optimal way to organize and structure these organizations is still very much <laughs> being figured out. I would say a lot of this is uh, experimental right now, but I think uh, very, very exciting as kind of a new way to coordinate people and capital to come together and accomplish accomplish like many different types of goals. True, true. Earlier, you made a point about uh, you made a point about voting structures within DAO. Mm -hmm in how everyone has full insight into the, the diligence process, voting, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it started making me think about if VCs could be run that way. Mm -hmm. Then it made me remember that like, we've just been seeing a huge influx of people called like crypto VC. And like when there was like a moment in time where people were saying crypto will be the end of VC, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm generally curious to get your take on like traditional VC versus crypto. Yeah, so I think there's a distinction between um, like traditional VC funds and then crypto VC funds. So I'll do that first. And then there's definitely a conversation to be had about crypto VCs versus the community or DAOs or groups of operators or whatever investing in the ecosystem. The ways that crypto VCs are different than traditional VCs are that, or investing in crypto is different, is like a lot of these protocols have a public accessible token very quickly and they're like in terms of the DeFi protocols they're generating cash flow very 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 quickly and so they actually don't need to raise that much capital most of the time and so it's really really becomes more about what can these crypto VC funds offer them other than capital much more so than is ever the case in kind of the traditional venture world and what those value add kind of are typically for crypto are they're going to be like a really active governance participant, which is not something traditional VCs are used to doing, right? Because this is that whole governance process is kind of unique to crypto. Like being able to make markets so that the tokens have liquidity. And then I would say being able to hire Solidity developers and then regulatory compliance and legal counsel. So for crypto specifically, because it's entirely different than anything else. So those are pretty distinct things. And I think capabilities, networks, knowledge base, whatever, that like traditional venture funds don't really have as much. If you're like, from a traditional VC perspective too, if you're to invest in crypto, you're going to need like liquid portfolio management. Your time horizon in crypto, like vesting is usually 24 months because everything moves so fast. Like 10 years is, I mean, Ethereum's not even 10 years old. So that's not the horizon. <laughs> for crypto and then you have <laughs> like on-chain transparency and accountability and you have to worry about custody and security there's also like this element super interesting if you look at sushi swap which had raised uh, money from an airdrop and a public token so they had been funded by the what we call the community but that's just that's a um, 
permissionless and anybody could buy their token. And then they put forward a proposal to bring in more traditional investors. There were many, I know that Lightspeed was one. And you have this like really interesting dynamic where in, in SushiSwap's Discord, the traditional VCs were kind of pitching the community on why the community should let them in. <laughs> so that's a very different power dynamic than you see obviously in, in traditional venture markets. And then within crypto, you have different ways to get funding. And one is from the community, like I mentioned. So just having a, a core community of users or participants or whatever that then, then back the protocol. Or you have DAOs as becoming a bigger thing. And there's like kind of two categories of those that I think are interesting. One is investors. And those could be angels or those could be people that used to be at venture funds. But if you were like a top performer at a venture fund, it might, and you've been in crypto for a while and you've done well with your, and you have some personal capital that you could invest, it's probably more attractive for you to invest with four or five other people in a DAO, like share the ownership amongst four or five people equally. So we're seeing more of that happen. And then what I think is like a really, really formidable force are like operator DAOs. So you have 20 or 30 like operators from crypto that have been in the space building stuff for a while and they'll come together and pool their personal capital. Maybe they take some outside capital uh, and they'll invest. And I think that's, those are really the syndicates that can add the most value and they can actually you know, build products and stuff. And that's like who the founders are probably most inclined to work for. Oh man, uh, it sounds like, with. it sounds like it might be the end of Angels List. So Angelist actually, I think said that they will now support USDC. So anybody who wants to invest using, that's a, USDC is a stable coin. It's a cryptocurrency backed one for one by the US dollar. And so they're like any incumbent, they'll adapt. <laughs> they're just going to stand still and watch this happen. My thought on it, though, if the DAO can exist from a voting perspective and it has a lot of benefits, if you can build something on top of that, that would actually enable people to manage their syndicate base or mm -hmm. like transfer the money to the founder, I don't know. It may make sense to pay them less. And I love I love AngelList, by the way. I think it's like yeah. we do syndicates on AngelList. But I could totally see this disrupting that before it like generally disrupts the, the VC universe. Yeah, I, I think there'll still be a place for AngelList for a long time. I also don't want to oversell DAOs. Again, I'm ex very excited about them in terms of the potential of what they could be. Right now, they're super messy. Like a lot of them are not that decentralized. Most of them are not autonomous and they like, again, most of them are not super organized and there's trade-offs with everything. And so there are times when the DAO structure will be preferable and then and there are times when it won't be like you're dealing with, it's a decentralized organization. And so there are trade-offs that come, uh, that come with that. And like I said, I think it's still pretty experimental. And so a lot of DAOs are experimenting with what the best kind of internal organizational structures look like, how you actually scale these up. Like I think there's lots of growing pains going on and like how to keep things organized and efficient and what the right balance between being decentralized is, but like still having enough guidance or like structure to the DAO to make sure that you don't just have like thousands of people yelling at each other in a discord because that you're not gonna be able to move very quickly that way. Very true. Very true. Well, Clay, 
we miss you. Do you want to, uh, one, give any thoughts or, or two, maybe start us with some of the rapid fire questions? Yeah. And before that, you know, Justine, you'd have the full open floor to ask me like, any question in the world, whether it be about investing life, uh, I don't know, just anything in the world, love, I don't care. I guess what, um, like, what about the venture role surprised you like that you weren't? Was it, so wait, the question is what about venture surprised us the most? Yeah, like relative to like how you thought it was going to be, what were you like, well, you really didn't know it was going to be like this. I think, especially analyst associate roles are pitched to be more glorious than they actually are. I think they're essentially sales roles at the end of the day, doing a lot of that without the commission of a sales role. So you could actually argue that it's not as favorable as being a sales rep at like a growing SaaS company. And a lot of people that say that they love working in ventures say that because they get to work with founders all day. When in reality, like you're not really working with founders, you're yeah. sourcing great founders in and then somebody above you in, in the chain of command is the one that's actually doing the dirty work, working yeah. with founders to grow the business. So I think that's not necessarily what you hear on the job description, but I think that's kind of the harsh reality, at least of a lot of the junior roles with NBC. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say that uh, two things. One, it was never made like fully apparent to me statistically what it takes to have real success in venture. So when you combine like mm -hmm. the amount of money you make relative to other private market AUM structures, based on the fact that basically if you don't make a ton of returns, like you only make money on management fees. So when you, and, and then also like your returns are based on a multiple of, or percentage of, and a multiple of the, the AUM you have, it didn't strike me just how much of the VC universe didn't actually make that much money. And it didn't strike me on like how statistically hard it is to do so, even in a frothy market. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. And then I guess on like a positive slash stark note what surprised me was like how big how seemingly big this universe is of people who are thinking about tomorrow and updated on like the future and like all these great things relative to how like the 99.5 percent of the world lives most people don't understand cutting edge technology most people aren't aware that every single thing around us is changing in real time and your function is being threatened at any point in time or your life is going to increase this much by this innovation at this point in time. And um, it's just crazy to me how these are completely different universes. If you live in one universe, the world is like this incredible place full of opportunity and the most exciting things changing. And if you live in another world, it's like the world's closing in and mm -hmm. like, things might never change, you know? <laughs> so I guess just difference yeah. in mentality uh, amongst socioeconomic groups. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I was just reading, there's really good book called, what is it called? Super founders who's someone who was at uh, DCVC wrote and he like did this analysis on I think billion dollar startups and looked at a lot of the conceptions that um, VCs will talk about in terms of what makes a great founder a great company and then did an anal actual analysis on the founders of those companies and those companies to see if any of them held water and anyways there's a section in the book where he talks about the concentration in Silicon Valley, which is obviously changing, but then also how that kind of 
lead startups to create products for like the type of demographics that like tend to live in Silicon Valley, which is not at all representative of most people in the world. At all. That's one of the big arguments about like the return based thesis on investing in women and people of color or immigrants, right? They actually see what the 99% of the world lives like. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. So yeah, that's, that's definitely something that I, as an investor and entrepreneur, think about. Yo, Clay, you want to take us into the quick fire round? Yeah, let's do it. So Justine, we have these five questions at the end, all meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Okay. I got, I like some spicy takes for this. (laughs) I think almost all advice is bad because it tells you like, it has much more to do with the giver of that advice than the receiver. And so it's also always going to be backward looking, right? It's based on people's experiences, which happened in the past. Yeah. I love that. I try to not give advice anymore. I try to just let people I think the best investors listen and don't give advice to founders. Yeah. Great listeners, not good advice givers. Next one we've got in the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Yeah, I think um, this year for me has been about conviction and like consistency in that conviction. So is the way to allocate my time, my portfolio, my attention aligned with what I think I have conviction about and am I positioning my life accordingly? I think, yeah, consistency in the things I have conviction on. So for example, if I have a, sorry, this is like more than two sentences, I'll stop there. (laughs) No, it's good. That's awesome. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? I hated like how long the feedback loops are. I'm fine with a 10 year horizon, but I need to know like rapidly that I'm making progress or on the right track and you're just not going to get that in venture. And I think way more of this has to do with luck than anybody ever (laughs) admits. I didn't love that, how luck-based I thought it was. A hundred percent. I think very few investors will admit that i think a lot oh, of, no, like, <laughs> yeah which is super annoying but i totally agree especially as a younger kid in venture you just have no idea whether you're doing any good work or not because as you said like most people don't actually stay for their fun it's not actually a partner level role and so then you're doing all this work and by the time you leave like there's no significant progress anyway i think that's really good good advice there next one we've got what is the best piece of advice you have for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Yeah, so I would say like start, just start doing the job on even on the smallest scale. Like I used to take calls and go to demo days and network with like doing things that like people didn't really care about, but I was still building the right skills and demonstrating that I could do what was required, even though I wasn't like talking to the hottest founders and working on the best deals and stuff. So I would say just start doing it like on a small scale, whatever scale you can access. And then I would say you have to really, I think, play the long game. And that's part of what was frustrating about it to me is that there's a lot of foundational work they have to do to build your network and your reputation with founders and can take a long, maybe you meet somebody and you don't provide like a useful intro 
to them for another six months. All that stuff matters. It just, it takes, it's like a compounding thing that takes a long time. And the inverse of that is if you're ever a jerk, like <laughs> everyone's going to know it and that will maybe not immediately impact you, but like eventually it, it will. Yeah, the whole idea of doing the work before you have the job, using a crypto reference, it's proof of work and just showcasing mm -hmm. like that you actually know what you're doing. It makes people, it makes it a lot easier, at least from my experience, it makes it a lot easier for people to take a chance on you if you can provide something like that rather than just saying like, oh, look at my resume, here's why you should hire me, like telling rather than actually doing and showing. Yeah. So yeah, totally agree with all that. Last one we've got is who is a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to? Yeah. So I think most of my mentors are like peer mentors. And I think like peer mentors don't get enough of the spotlight and stuff. So honestly, just like friends or equals that I go to that I think of really good guidance or like frameworks to think through things. So I have a bunch of those. And I also think it's like, as a VC, most of my peer mentors were like operators or founders. We get the other perspective. And then I saw on Twitter the other day about somebody posting about wanting a Gen Z mentor. <laughs> and I actually think I do have a lot of like much younger people that maybe I don't necessarily think of as mentors, but that I learn a ton from because if all this is supposed to be like future looking and we're supposed to understand how the world's going to evolve, then like you really have to understand with the like 20 somethings of the world, like young grads and whatever, how they look at the world, think about the world, like what products they use, what do they like, what do they hate? So I would actually say like get a Gen Z <laughs> mentor might not be the right word, but like. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's all good advice. And I think I wraps it up for quick fire. Thank you so much for kicking with us. Yeah, thanks for reaching out and having me. <laughs> Huge thanks again to Justine for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Justine, you can find her social info linked within the description below. You can also find her contact info in the Confluence VC directory. For next steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.vc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles. You can subscribe there at www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from you all soon.